Hello, friend. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. I'm so glad to welcome you into the same place. It's a place of inclusivity and safety for any conversation to be heard. The safe place began as a image in my head of a wooden cabin on the lake. My own place of mental safety. And I welcome you here to listen to discussions on mental and physical health mental illness and mental and physical disability. You may hear stories that inspire. You may hear stories that make you cry, both in sadness and happiness. But always told from a place of truth. And we hold dear the principles of love, kindness and compassion. Now, with that all said, it's time to hunker down, get comfortable, so we're ready to welcome you in too. A safe place. Hello and welcome, Jamie. So thank you so much for coming on today. Um, and as is almost tradition, really, with guests, I'll hand straight over to you and you can say a little bit about yourself. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Um, apologies to your listeners now. I am Northern Irish. We do have a tendency to speak slightly faster and the more excited I get, my ADHD kicks in. So these are going to go down a lovely rabbit hole with me today. Um, but my name is Jamie Shields. I am a registered blind ADHD rhino. And I know you're probably going, why are you calling yourself a rhino? Rhinos have one of the, well, some of the worst eyesight in mammals and also chubby unicorns. So for me, I'm like, covers all of my identities there. So it does, which is great. Um, so I work within disability inclusion, so I do. Um, specifically, I work for Alexander Man Solutions, or We Are AMS, and my role is to really help look at disability across a global perspective. How do we kind of connect those dots between regions, but how do we still kind of maintain that individual identity within regions? Because that's something I think we notice in disability is there's so much variation between, you know, if you even look at country and EMEA, so look, let's look at EMEA, you look at Spain and then look at Italy, the laws change so much between just those two countries yeah. in that one region. So it's looking at how we connect those dots. And the reason why I do this is, as I said, like I'm registered blind. I was born with my eyesight, didn't get registered blind straight away because you have to kind of go through a process, like you tested to see if you can see. Um, so I went through that process and pretty much my whole life I've experienced inaccessibility, barriers, lack of support, lack of understanding. Uh, and because of that, I really struggled with my identity, particularly mental health and trying to accept the fact that I was disabled, but also trying to fa- accept the fact I was gay. So it was like, I was yeah. having to come out and then come out and it was yeah, very yeah. tired. So it was, so that's where my motivation comes from, my lived experience. And I'm working in, I'm going to say my dream profession because it's, I don't actually know if it's my dream profession because it wasn't one that I dreamt for myself, but it's now that I feel like I'm living a dream. So it's yeah. now my living dream profession. <laughs> Sounds good. So in terms of being born, because we, we've both been born with our our disabilities, and it was interesting, I was having a conversation with um, uh, one of our previous guests, um, a lady called Brooke uh, Milhouse, who mm. is an adaptive athlete. So she she competes in CrossFit, um, mm. but from a, a adaptive uh, perspective. So she's uh, she's got um, from the elbow joints on her right arm. Um, she doesn't have that part of her arm, mm-hmm. so she obviously has to then adapt the types of work workouts. 
Um, and we were kind of chatting about that concept of people being born with something and the kind of experiences that you go through and people acquiring a disability later on. Mm. What's been your experience then of, of growing up with a visual impairment, so being registered as, as blind? Mm. I'm guessing schooling must have been enough of a drama. Oh, yeah, it was a nightmare, so it was. So I... Like I always tell people when they say to me, you know, the question I always get is, what, what, what do you see different, or you know, what was different for you? And like I, 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 it's a hard question to ask because I, I don't think I ever knew any different. Yeah. But I think I knew that I was different because people treated me differently in school, particularly, especially primary school. I attended mainstream education, and my mum fought for years with the education boards to try to get me into special schools so would have smaller classes, um, adjustments constantly. Teachers were specially trained to work with individuals who were blind or deaf. Um, and like my mum fought for years to get that, but for my first seven years of education, I struggled. Like I came home, I can remember coming home, like I know like I was really young, so I don't remember the ends and outs, but I can remember coming home and my mum screaming and marching me back to school because I'd come home with bloody nose and school hadn't cleaned it up. I'd walked into gates or I'd come home and they'd be like, do you like almost an imprint of a ball that hit me in the face because yeah. they have me play sports with the kids. And then as I kind of got towards P6, P7, I, it went from being like they were trying to get me to blend in with everybody and be in inverted commas normal um, but when I got to P6, P7 they then started excluding me so it was almost like the opposite of what I experienced they kind of put me into the school you call it the unit so the unit was almost and I hate this term but they would call it the special needs class it was yeah. needed that additional support and you were ostracizing the rest of your class and kind of pigeonholed away and kind of taught that you were different that you needed to blend into everybody else and you were almost the problem so when I actually left primary school my mum had fought so hard to get me into special education. She actually was successful. And I went to see him um secondary school as my uncle did. As my eyesight condition, the it runs in my family, it's hereditary, and women carry this gene, they pass on to males, um, but it kind of skips skips a generation. Yeah. So well it's meant to, it hasn't done that in a while, but it was meant to initially. Um but for myself, like the condition is called ocular albinism with the stigmas. Um, which is a fancy way of saying my eyes like to go for little walks, that's my nystigmas, or little dances. And then I'm the same as an albino, only with pigmentation. So my sister always says that I'm rarer than an albino. Um, and apparently albino bones in Africa are really, I think, sacred, like especially yeah. for animals. So my sister keeps saying she's going to bring me to Africa and sell my bones one day. Um, that was the running joke of my childhood. Um, but with regard to um, education, so I went to the same school my uncle went to, it was amazing for six years because um, we had an actual year to do we had to do entry levels before we did our GCSEs. So it was almost like a very slow down approach to learning, but it was like a class of six people at this amazing support. Although the problem was that all this amazing support was never really demonstrated to me or told, you know, this is how you get this yourself. So when I actually yeah. left education, I ended up going back into mainstream because I wanted to be normal like everybody else. I was having to travel like nearly an hour and a half to two hours a day to get to school each way. So like when you're 11 going to 16 that's not a fun experience like four hours of your day is wasted in a taxi where you're waiting to get home and waiting to get there so i struggled my friends used to mock me for traveling so far and i used to tell everybody i went to boarding school but i didn't board which i definitely should have boarded if it would have been a boarding school but i kind of struggled and i didn't want to be disabled all my friends were normal why couldn't i be normal so i went into mainstream education got really badly bullied for being gay for being disabled and I kind of learned that education, like you fall off on the edge of a cliff sometimes after specialist education because you're so wrapped up in cotton wool, you're so wrapped up in bubble wrap that 
yeah. you come out to the real world and you don't know how to talk about yourself, you don't know how to ask for adjustments, you don't know how to defend yourself when somebody is talking about your disability or how to answer those questions. So I got quite badly bullied and from about 16 to about 20 something, I early 20s, I'd been strength, I suffered really bad mental health problems, I lashed out at the world, everybody was in the wrong because they didn't understand and my poor parents, they tried to understand, obviously my biggest advocates, but you know, I think yeah. sometimes, you know, yourself, you push away the people close, closest to you when you're hurting. So I was, excuse my language, I was a little rap. I was going to say a little shit, but I'm going to say, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> I was a little shit, as my mum would say. Um, but I I kind of just, I don't know what happened. I moved away to the city. And I think for myself, like, because I, I knew I was different and I was struggling to fit in, I tried to run away to the city um, to try to have independence and struggle there. I struggled with employment, couldn't get jobs, couldn't hold them down. I think that I had more jobs than I did hot dinners at that point. And my mum, I can remember my mum saying to me, and she was like, you need to move back home. You're wasting away, you're getting so skinny, you're you're just not yourself. And it kind of all came to a head. I ended up on medication off my depression and things like that. But for me, it was, I didn't find myself and my confidence in myself or empowerment is the word I use until I started yeah. working for AMS like three years ago. Um, oh, and it wow. just changed because for the first time in my life, people actually accepted me for being disabled. They didn't feel like I needed to wear a mask. Yeah. So it's a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, there's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. So I mean, being bullied is definitely a common theme. Um, I mean, I I remember growing up. I mean, I I suffered from or lived with. I prefer to say it um, with um, bullying. Yeah, as far back as I can remember, basically. Um, and it was kind of starting off with the kind of little things that I, because you know, I've, I've got a different experience in the sense that my disabilities were, are less so now, but have been fairly easy to, to hide because actually if I was wearing trousers, unless I was having a bad pain day, then you probably wouldn't notice. Um, so- but obviously in school, any form of difference is just attached to straight away. And that's not to say that all the kids were horrible, not at all. I've still got some wonderful friends from from school that, you know, I, I love dearly. Um, but there were certain individuals that really weren't. Um, and it does seem a, a kind of common theme Um it definitely is. I think that kids kids can be so cruel. And I think yeah. that we all know that. Like, I think if you're a parent, you know that your kids can say things sometimes and you're like, oh my God, my child just called me fat. And you're like, almost like nearly having a heart attack that your child can be so rude. But kids, I think, I don't, they don't come from a place of hate. And I think that's the biggest difference sometimes. Or with, they come from a place of negligence. They just aren't aware. And I yeah. don't think that's the child's fault. I, I, blame, I blame society for that. I blame the society that we live in because I tell everybody I'm registered blind, but I'm disabled by society. It's not my registered blind that disables me when I'm trying to go online. It's not my eyesight that disables me when I'm asking for support and not getting it. It's people's ignorance. And I think for, for a young person, it's it's easier to kind of pick on something that's different to kind of learn to accept it. Whereas when we become an adult, we learn that actually that is the better approach. But again, so I'm from Northern Ireland and, you know, we talk about hate in communities and there's kind of a lot of conflict from where I'm from. And yeah. we all say hate's taught. 
ignorance is something that you, you pick up. So you do, you know, if you are from a household where people are using the wrong terminology for disability, you're going to start using that. If you hear somebody saying that's a negative thing, you start to perceive it that way. So for me, I think for children, I got I got picked on in primary school because I blocked the board, but I wanted to see something on the board. I stand up and the kids would pick, pick on me. And I remember one instance, and this day still haunts me, and I'm 32 now, so you'd think I would get over it. But there was a girl who had a party and she invited everybody in the class, so all 20-something people, except me because I was different. She And the word she told me was, oh, I don't want the blind boy at my party. So, you know, it, things like that stuck with me. And even when I kind of got into even in, when I was a specialist girl, I got bullied, but I got bullied because I was gay at specialist girl. So it was like, I thought I finally found this community. Could not win. It was just like, it was like, okay, so I can't be gay. I can't be disabled. It's like, who do I be? Because I can't be none of these people. And then when I went to uh, my specialist education, it was, sorry, not specialist, my mainstream education for A-levels. It was just a whole different cap. First, it was like I felt like I had walked from the playground bullying into like high school bullying. It was it was a lot meaner. It was a lot more physical. So I used to get actual into fist fights. And I'm a really, I'm a gentle giant. Do you know what I mean? Like I can't, like I can't see a fist if it's coming to hit me anyway. But yeah. so having a constant kind of get fist fights and I, I started to rebel. Like I started smoking and trying to, trying to find ways to fit into different cliques so people would kind yeah. of learn to accept me. And I think also because I was an art kid, because apparently that's all I thought would be the easiest thing to do. I couldn't do ICT. They told me I couldn't do it because I couldn't get any support. So I became an art kid, and I think automatically people then sort of labeling me as different. It was like, oh, well, there's a little gay boy who does art you can't see. So it was very much yeah. like this narrative followed me through. So kids can be cruel, but as society, I think we have to do more. And I think school and education has a massive part to play in teaching. That, yes, some of us may think or learn or act differently but that's not something to push against that's something to celebrate and i think that's where we have the biggest failing at the moment in education yeah and it it is definitely a failing in education i think some schools are better than than others i mean (laughs) my son started school and i mean i i am not in the slightest bit religious but it is a it is a religious school Mm -hmm. and it's it's kind of backbone i guess is based on effectively good morals so yeah. you know being kind being compassionate um you know just being a good citizen effectively yeah. um and yeah it's, it's quite a it's quite a little school as well mm. um, obviously he's only young anyway so it's a little school in in, in multiple senses of yeah. the word <laughs> but it, it's it's a local you know small small size school and i think that helps but i do have that that fear that when he then goes up to big school which is a long way off with you know we're, mm. we're, we're talking years here that he'll get this big sudden hit of what the wider society is is really big like. bad world yeah um because that's scary no i think like I don't like I don't have biological children of my own, but I have a stepson who is sixteen and when I me and his partner my partner, me and his partner, that wouldn't be right. When me and his dad <laughs> got together, it was very much like, you know, he was twelve, he was ready, he was starting to enter that phase of going into second school and I can remember thinking, Oh my god, this poor boy has no clue what's coming from. Thankfully he's actually quite a cool kid and got into the clique. Do you know what I mean? He's quite he's yeah. quite a, a well-balanced young man i'll say and i know it sounds really silly but he just has we head and shoulders and it's just so kind to everybody but i think of other kids like my, my hometown where i'm from some of the schools are quite rough and i you know i remember like watching kids beat each other up at lunchtime 
just because one had a different religion to the other and going out to the street and fighting and all over it. And I think of that and I'm like, yes, we've evolved a little bit from then, but I think the the schools that are doing really well right now, the teachers who are really going out of the way to do that, we need more of them. And that's yeah. something I can't be against. A lot of question things around education and people say, well, I do this and, you know, why are you giving off? But I'm like, but you're one you're one institution, you're one school in one district or one council. Yeah. There's so many more. There needs to be a more unified approach to this. And I think then when you look at the difference between public school and private school as well, it's like there's an even bigger gap there too because obviously public schools don't get as much funding, even though they should. They don't get as much of those kind of workshops or those holistic kind of approaches to education or awareness. And I think there needs to be a lot more. And I think a lot of it can be put down to the government. They should be doing a lot more as well um, yeah. to kind of bring this to light in schools. Yeah, and I mean, schooling is so fundamental to growing up. So if you're not getting it right through your schooling and through what you're teaching and how the teachers behave uh, as much as anything else towards students, as, as much as students behave to, towards each other, and the ramifications of not um, treating each other in, in an acceptable way. Like if you don't get that right, then all you're doing is just creating a society that is going to boil over and, and, and have negative experiences. I still find the whole, if you're of a different religion, then you're bad um, yeah. oh. kind of mindset just... I, I really struggle with that mindset. Yeah. Northern Ireland is, it's beautifully unique in that sense where it's troubled past. And, you know, that's something that, you know, when people talk about the troubles in Northern Ireland and stuff, they say, oh, you know, it's over now. It's like, but for me, I'm like, is it really over? Because we still have peace walls. We still have in segregated communities. We still have yeah. our militaries. It's very much still something that happens. And then I just think that Northern Ireland is, I tell everybody, I, working in d and I'm like, Northern Ireland to me is its own unique circumstances and I think there's areas in it that we do try to address around the religious conflict but I think that there's so much work that is done in Northern Ireland and we always say that it's so far behind the mainland and it's true you know if I look at some of the things which um, happens in the mainland so England or Scotland Wales um, actually I, I, I'm going to focus on England actually because I don't, can't really speak for England Wales, uh, Scotland Wales but yeah. if I look at England you know if I look at the education there and I look at the support of some of that education compared to what's in Northern Ireland to what's available here it's shocking it's the contrast of what we have available and we're all part of the UK is it's shocking so it is there's a massive drop off I think and for me I'd like to see a more unified tailored approach because the, yes we have individual circumstances here but surely educating kids is should be the same approach of all in the UK should we have all the same agenda to make kids be less bully less likely to bully each other more likely to accept and how do we create a sense of belonging for children who maybe are disabled and neurodivergent because I remember asking a teacher once saying I can't see this what do I do and it was me trying to sew and this was when I was like doing my A-level art and her response to me was well just keep trying and I said can you help me um, thread the needle and it was like no do it yourself I was like you're expecting somebody who's red supply to thread a needle like does that not just tell you there's something wrong <laughs> doesn't really fit that sentence does it no it's, it's like somebody saying to me go find that needle in a haystack okay good one that's never happening here's a bit of hey see you later <laughs> yeah yeah and it, I, mean, oh. I guess one of the things that you have seen though with your with your kind of because you're you're a few years younger than i am but mm. not not by much so you'd have gone through similar things in the sense that when you first started school, technology would have been pretty absent, oh, yeah. really. 
Well, we're now working in a world that, yeah, that, that it's, it's all based on technology, really. Like, do you remember dial-up internet? Like, I can remember Same. when I got my first computer, the RNIB had given my mum this kind of like, I, I think it was like a grant or something to get me a such a technology, and it was yeah. like an old-school brick computer, big block, and this big, massive, heavy hard drive that you had to have underneath it. And the sound, I used to love the sound because I tell everybody, it was probably one of the worst things in my life having to dial up, but one of the best things because it was so accessible, that sound made yeah. sure you knew you were online. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. Great. But technology has, I do think, like, I used to, when I was younger, if I didn't know how to read something, I'd ask my mum. I can now take out my smartphone, take a photo of something, and my Android will tell me what it says. If I, I'm out and about and I'm lost, I turn on my sat nav. Anybody used to sat nav is used to fix text technology. That's all based off the technology used to help people who are blind or people who are navigating online. So for me, I'm like, we all use these advances in technology and people don't realize that even the lack of toothbrush, that was created for people with disability who couldn't hold or grip a toothbrush, but yet we all use it. Automatic door. There's so many things out there. And I think for me, it's something that comes back to my work at AMS is I am our Global Disability Employee Resource Group Lead, which is a complete mouthful, so ERG Lead. And in that role, you know, we look at, um, we work and collaborate quite closely with Neurodiversity ERG. And our motto is Design for the 1%. It's looking at how we can create something that benefits one person, but everybody can use and it's accessible to everybody. Yes, there'll not always be instances where that will work. So there'll be times we have to individually adapt to with somebody, but accessibility benefits everybody. Like closed captions, if you have closed captions on a video and you're watching a video um, and you're deaf, that supports you. If you're ADHD, it can help you focus. But if you've forgotten your headphones and the way to work and you're trying to watch a movie or trying to watch something on your phone, you can watch captions without the whole trailer bus know what you're doing. Yeah. Like if you're learning a language, you can turn them on and learn that way. So for me, it's like that design for the 1% and that thinking about how you create accessibly and the impact that will have, it reduces the barriers. And I think it's something that we should be focusing on in education too is you know, you learn in education and ICT classes is how to type, touch type, I learned how to touch type and how to do documents. Well, why aren't we now teaching how to make accessible documents? Because yeah. that's now all part of PowerPoint. That should be part of the curriculum in ICT or work processing. We don't teach in marketing how to create accessible marketing. If you go and learn coding, you don't learn how to code accessibly. It's crazy to think that we live in a society where 15% of the world is a disability and that's arguably higher. I'm going to say that's about 20%, if not more. But we don't have systems or tools or processes in place to kind of make sure that from a young age, we know how to be accessible. We know the benefits of being inclusive and accessible. We don't learn that until we get into the workforce. And that's a problem. Well, it, and it, it is a fundamental point in any type of development. So, I mean, if I think of, of designing a, a bank card, because a lot of those have gone through redesign recently. Mm-hmm. So when the when the person first first um, designed bank cards, they designed them so that they had, <coughs> excuse me, a raised uh, number so that yep. people could utilize that, uh, and and the rest of it was uh, so name was raised, etc. All kind of reasonable ticks yep. in the in 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 the box. Now most people won't even think about why that was there and, and what that was trying to trying to do. And obviously it makes it more accessible for somebody with um, some degree of visual impairments. Mm-hmm. And now they've redesigned the cards and they don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a complete mess and feet. But you know, even when you look at it, and I think that 
Like, I'm not going to name her I'm having issues with, but I'm having problems with my bank at the moment. If you see my LinkedIn, you'll probably know exactly what I'm talking about. But, <laughs> you know, with this bank at the moment, uh, they're a digital bank, and you think about technology and um, the digital age and how things should be more accessible if it's online. But actually, a lot of these new digital services aren't accessible in any way, shape, means, or form. Their bank card doesn't have those raised letters. And I can remember, like, not even remember, but there's times where your, your numbers and your cards fade. They will fade away and you can't see them. And for somebody like myself who has limited vision, that is just honestly an obstacle waiting to happen. So those those ele- ele- engraved, just going to say elevated, those engraved numbers, I could put a crayon over a page and scribble that and that would show up. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know it sounds yeah. silly, but I could feel it with my fingers. I could shift sh- down to the light certain ways and kind of maybe catch it. But now if my card gets scratched and I can't see that number, like I can't do anything. I thought I a brand new card. And not only is it kind of damages the environment, but it's also just a barrier waiting to happen. And even when we look at the services of those digital platforms, where it's like, oh, you can do all your banking online. And well, actually, what happens when you have to verify your ID because you have to hold your passport and read something off the screen. Yeah. Now, I might do that register blind. I yeah. get my partner to help me do that. And I think that's the problem is we live in an age now where things should be easier. We look at things like the metaverse where all good people do things online and it's amazing, but we all need to kind of stop and think how are we making this accessible for people with disabilities or people who are neurodivergent because we are always left out of the equation. We aren't included at the design stage. We aren't included at the testing stage. Instead, we're consulted when somebody kicks up a fuss on social media and says, that's not accessible. You know, there was an ad brought out a few months ago from a credit card. I don't remember. I'm not, I know who it is. I'm not going to say the name again because I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get you in trouble on the show. Um, but, you know, they released an advert and it was around people who were blind and they were back customers. But the advert was actually really a false representation of blind people. Because, yeah. you know, they had them all. Well, they had them running around as if they, there was no kind of consideration given to how they moved or how they kind of actually navigated. It was very much like you could tell it was an actor running around yeah, yeah. Who, who had sight. And I think that representation as well is we're not getting that. You're not taking our advice. You're not getting it from the people who are the experts. And that's the people with lived experience. And curse, somebody has 20 years experience working in DNA. That's never going to top somebody's lived experience of disability. And that never. That whole representation piece is... It's a really interesting topic, just more broadly. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you there's there's a few shows that I watch, and there's there's one in particular called, called Good Doctor, which is um, a great series, really really mm-hmm. good. Um, and the the main character for those that haven't watched it is a neurodiverse um, doctor. He's autistic, um, and it's basically working. Uh, his uh, way through the medical um, profession in America um, and, you know, coming up against all sorts of different uh, problems. But the actual actor that plays it isn't neurodiverse, yeah. I'm pretty sure, um, at, to any level. I know he's, he's certainly not, not um, in the same way as the character. And I'm really split on the... It's great because actually it's it feels like a decent portrayal um and you know that's me saying that without that much experience of 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 uh people with uh autism in particular but it's still not the person with autism playing the character and that's the problem and i think that like it for me i think these 
it's, it's always a really good idea in papers. And when you read something for this, it's like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. I watched it and I can remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh my God, this is really good because it's going to highlight the challenges and the worries that people who are neurodivergent or autistic face in the workplace because it, it, it tried to do it in a different way. But then when I actually started reading some of the reviews from people actually with lived experience, like this is a really false representation of my lived experience. This isn't how, this is how we think. Yeah. And then it's, I think about other things where, you know, you see actors playing blind people or deaf people or playing somebody with a disability and you can tell it's somebody acting and that's the problem is you can you can't i'm not saying that you can't go and act and do something else to change things up because you can't anybody can do what they want but to understand that lived experience to publicize something about lived experience or market something about it you need the people with the lived experience because otherwise you're not really going to capture that real feeling. And if you are using actors, great, but have them actually go consult those people who actually have the lived experience. There's enough actors and struggling people trying to get into the industry out there with disabilities or who are neurodivergent. Why aren't you tapping into that talent pool? And, and pay again, them as well. Yeah, oh my goodness. Do you know how many times they get message asking for free advice? So, oh, we're working on a recruitment process. Would you mind giving us some input? And I'm like... See, if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have said yes, because I was I was excited about this whole thing of helping everybody. And now I'm like, I have to think of myself. Like, I get burnout when I'm sitting on a Saturday making posters for somebody because they've asked me to make it because they like my graphics. And I'm happy to do it. Or if I come have a chat, yeah, I'll come talk. But that's time that you're putting in. You know, you're mentally yeah. preparing yourself to do that talk. You're mentally preparing the resources if you're doing training. If you're standing over, you know, a video for yourself presenting, It's it all takes time, energy, and effort. So for me, I'm like pay those people who are doing your speaking because let's face it it's not easy to get up and expose yourself and that's what you do each time you get up and talk about your disability or your lived experience you're exposing yourself to the world the world you're opening yourself up to people calling you out questioning you asking you things that's probably going to make you uncomfortable like yeah. i get called out to challenge all the time on my use of language when it comes to disability because for myself like i advocate the social model of disability so society very much does disable me but I don't like to say, say I'm a disabled person, which is identity first language. I still prefer to opt to use person first language or yeah. I'm a person with disability, but I get told all the time, oh, we can't follow the social model if you say that. And I'm like, well, who decided that we have to follow a model to begin with? Yeah. Why do we have to follow this constructed model if somebody's decided to come along and say, everybody needs to conform to me? Well, no, we're all so diversely different. We're also intersectional or lived experiences will take impact by what's happening around us but if we're all going to say that we're going to follow one model and we have to use the same language that's a dictatorship to me and it i think the thing with there's two things with disability that i i don't think people really understand the first one is that within the i don't, I don't really like the whole disabled community kind of um phrasing because it it's such a it's such a huge group. It's not yeah. It's not really a community in that sense. But at the same time, I kind of get why 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 people say that. But it is such a massively diverse population mm-hmm. of people. Yeah, you know, you've got people from. Um, so you've got people like me who were born with lower limb condition and hit it hit the kind of pain and 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 um, difficulties that they had and molded themselves to you know be normal like you were saying yeah. before um up until it couldn't you then be hidden. Yeah. um but then equally you've got people that um have been in a car crash mm-hmm. and have you know broken their broken their back and 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 as a result and are then using a wheelchair and mm-hmm. are having to, to kind of get through that and you see 
you know, a kind of what is a small group of people that are doing amazingly well with it and, you know, living lives and, you know, the adaptive athletes are a great example of that, of people that have just, just kind of embraced everything yeah. um, with it and are just carrying on and, and doing amazing things. Um, and that's not amazing because they're disabled, by the way. Yeah. That's just the doing. Oh, it's the work, it's the energy and the effort. Is yeah. training for that. The guy's uh, neighbor years ago when he was Paralympian, he was a swimmer and he had limb indifference. So he, he, he worked honestly incredibly hard to get to where he was. And I can remember we went swimming lessons and we had went to swim and I was looking going, oh my God, I can barely swim five meters. And you have people here swimming legs in the arms of the pools and I'm standing here sitting going, I can't get in the water. I'm afraid of getting past my shoulder. And like for me, the dedication, the time and effort to, put, to prepare your body to do something so physically, mm. swimming's exhausting, I'm sorry. Everybody should, swimming's exhausting. So the work and effort that person put in, but like then you look at people who, because you know most of us acquire disability. Eighty percent of people acquire the disability, so it's almost yeah. they have to learn later in life. How do I overcome the this new challenge? How do I suddenly change or adapt my whole life? But you know, people like myself or my neighbour or like you who have had this experience, we've had years to struggle and try to find ways to fit in, ways to kind of say, "Wait a second, this doesn't work." And we, I think most of us come to the realization that. I'm going to have to tell people I'm disabled because I need that support and it's frustrating that we have to get to that point but when you look at people some people who are acquiring disability later in life they just aren't prepared and again it comes back to that why aren't we preparing society or why aren't we educating or why aren't we teaching that inclusive and how to be accessible because it's go, it can impact 80% of us in our lifetime what? and you know the number of disabilities just growing so it is the number of disabilities increased along COVID the birth rate yeah. the death rate age and population like there's so many contributing factors to disability that the disability population growing and I, I constantly have to stop but like why why don't we do more we do so much space work within the space of DEI for you know let's do gender pay gap reports let's do this let's do that but why aren't we taking the same mentality and putting it into every kind of group and putting that same lens in disability because disability is always left off the table it's always an afterthought because people think Ah, you know what? They're just expensive. They're just a bit of bother. They're they're gonna come in and need loads of help, and you know we we can't really be doing that. Or it's not the image we want for our business. And you think to yourself and think, surely we want representation of everybody in society within our organisation. Surely we should be prepared that eighty percent of us will acquire disabilities. So why wouldn't we be trying to make sure that we ourselves hold ourselves accountable to do everything we can to include those groups? Well, it's it's that. It's that piece about acquiring a disability. So as the population um, ages uh, more, so we are an aging population now, mm-hmm. you naturally then have more people that will um, have disabilities because as you become older, you generally speaking, and obviously there are exceptions to this, but you become more frail. So you're your muscles, your bones, everything just has had however many years of of taking abuse and you know, they can only last <laughs> so long. And then you need things like wheelchairs or you need carers to come in and, and kind of help you um, get changed or you know, there's a, a whole wealth of, of, of things that will, will come in or you go into a care home um, and, and have that, that kind of experience. And I think one of the things that, has always put me off about kind of coming out as disabled because as I say mine is generally one that 
that even now, if I really wanted to hide it, I could put up with the pain. I'd be completely exhausted by the end of the day, but I could go out and I would look reasonably normal. Um, I mean, I say that I probably couldn't now, but but it's, but do you know what? It's 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 funny because I think when we I think when we're born with our with our lived experience, when we're born with that lived experience, or we go through that lived experience, that's probably a better way to reword that. But when we go through that lived experience, I think that we have to we come to the realization that. We, we perceive normal as everybody who's who, who is non-disabled and you know we perceive that as what normal is and i think that gets so instilled inside of you and that it comes back to representation you don't see that representation so you start to see what a non-disabled person is as what you should be the ideal and i think that's what happened to me i see what my friends are doing i see my friends playing sport i see my friends going up to concerts and i had my mom saying oh here let me read that letter for you oh here let me cut that for you because you can't really use a knife and you know it's almost like I think that we, we we look out and almost we feel. I think for myself, and I remember to speak out of time, but for myself, I definitely felt that I was a wee bit mournful for the life that I didn't have because of my disability. Yeah. And I hate the fact that I can't drive. It, it, you know, when people talk about driving or saying, oh, I can't be bothered driving here. Or, you know, if I ask somebody for a lift, I'm like, oh, I can't be bothered driving. I'm like, I would give my left pinky to be able to drive. Like, it's so hard to be not be able to drive and then not being able to use public transport and being able to get buses by yourself like i've had i can't i struggle to get buses and trains i cannot see timetables and i've had quite bad experiences where i've had to ask for help and been publicly humiliated by people working when i've asked them for help oh you don't look disabled well where's your guide dog if you're blind or where's your cane well I wouldn't trust me with a guide dog. Um, I already have two tiny dogs, complete opposite of guide dogs. I triple them daily. But you know, I don't I don't choose to use a cane because I still in my have in my head have this perception I'm not disabled enough. I, I don't want to be yeah. disabled enough to have that. Like I only now started to even use a screen reader. And it's because I had never had that representation. I never had people using that around me. I never seen people using such a technology or adoptions and work or in businesses or even leaders in businesses doing it. So for me, I see normal as everyone that was non-disabled. And it's only taken the past three years for me to realize, actually, there's no such thing as normal. Because if you look at a sheep, you know, a normal sheep is a plain, you know, like a white sheep in a field. But that's not true. When do you ever see a sheep that's just plain white in a the field? They've all got those colorful marks. And so they know where they're all kind of a form they belong to. But if anything, that singular, very white sheep yeah. is actually the exception rather than you, the rule anyway. And that's what I've learned. And that's like, because I tell people I'm a rainbow sheep. And they're like, well, that just makes you the same as everybody else. And then that's what he's telling me. It's just like, well, it's the one white sheep is probably the clean sheep is the only one you want to find like that. But that's what kind of I think about when I think about that representation is, is we get into our heads when we go through something or we have that lived experience. And it's so hard to get yourself out of that mentality. It took me 28, 29 years to learn that my difference was actually my strength. That, you know what, me talking about my disability is going to help other people. It's going to help my organization remove barriers. And the problem for me was that there was nobody else for me to see doing it. And that's why I think we need to change. I I agree wholeheartedly. And, and it's it's kind of scary how similar our, our stories are whilst being different. Um, yeah, the same, the same kind of thoughts you've had there around, you know, wanting to be normal, mourning for a life that you could have had, and and for me it was sport. So, you know, being desperately wanting to be the same as everybody else, I was playing all sorts of sport, and actually I was decent at some of them, but I was never going to be 
a world-class rugby player or a world-class basketball player because I can't run as fast and I can't run at all now. But I, I, even back when I was younger, I couldn't run as quickly as everyone else because I just don't have that spring and I couldn't yeah. jump as high because, again, I just don't have that spring. I, it's, I've got to compensate with my upper legs mm. to do anything like that because that's just the way it is. And it's like I really now wish. So I started playing wheelchair basketball a couple of months back now. Um, mm. Getting COVID kind of put me put me um, off off plan for a little while, but hopefully getting back to it soon. And I wish, wish that when I was younger, I had seen wheelchair basketball on TV. Yeah, because. It would have made it would have made a difference. It would have made a huge difference. Yeah, because again, the same when I see people who are blind playing football, and I'm like, I remember playing football at school, and they used to put me in nets deliberately because I couldn't do anything else. Like, don't yeah. you go in nets because you'll not see the ball run around. Well, how am I stopping the ball? I remember standing <laughs> in the nets and just sitting screaming because the ball was coming in, like, but yeah. was coming in me, or like a shadow would pass and I'd jump out of the way. Like I was terrible, but if I would have seen people playing that when I was younger, do you know what I mean? That representation. It would have made a difference if I would have seen somebody who was visually impaired or registered blind who didn't have a cane or have a guide dog. I, that would have made a massive difference to me. But instead, what I saw was your proper, your your non-disabled sports people, your non-disabled teachers, your non-disabled marketing campaigns, your non-disabled actors and TV. There was everywhere you looked. There's no that real perception of disability, and if there there is a perception in those days, it was that it was a disabled person in a wheelchair, and even then, that doesn't encompass a disability. That doesn't encompass everybody, and it puts everybody's lived experience to be one type of thing. When not everybody's in a wheelchair is, is is can get out of that wheelchair. Do you know what I mean? People can get up and leave the wheelchair, but it's on TV it used to be prepared that that person was bound to the wheelchair. It's like, well, that's not the reality for most people in a wheelchair who is a wheelchair user. So for me. It's the representation. I think it's because they've never consulted people with disability. And I think that's why organisations like the Volleyball 500, like the Business Disability Forum, those organisations are really starting to not just work with businesses, but with actual society. And I know the Volleyball 500 does a lot of things here. Um, and you have the likes of Adoptive, Adoptive Fashion and you have the TED Talks and all about it now. Like, yeah. We're starting to see more of a shift towards that. This is where we should be going, but we should be including these people, or these people with the lived experience should be in the decision making process. And I, I love it, so I do. But for me, I'm like, why are we 20 or 30 years too late? Because for the people who came before, we're, we're always going to mourn the life that we've missed. When I found out I was, well, I'm still waiting for my official ADHD diagnosis, but I'm pretty sure after listening to this here call today, I'm pretty sure tell me <laughs> that we know what that's going to turn out and say. But, you know, I've been able to identify that I am neurodiverse because of being part of an ERG group, because people would talk about the experience. But if I would have heard people talk about that 10, 15 years ago, I might have been able to get support for that. I may have been able to identify a lot sooner. Instead, I think what happened was I was misdiagnosed. I was putting antidepressant tablets. It wasn't that I was... I obviously was really down about not being able to be myself, but I just struggled because I wasn't able to process. And instead of doctors being able to recognize that or people being able to kind of talk to me about it, it was always oh, mental health. Don't talk about this. Don't talk about this. Yeah. When in fact, I just needed to have somebody there to tell me, well, actually, you might have ADHD. When I told my mum I had ADHD, she, she said, oh, I just thought you were a bit quirky because you were gay and disabled. You've always been a bit quirky. And I just laughed it off. And I'm like, well, no. Thanks, it's the same as when I told everybody it's gay. I was just like, I told everybody it's gay. I was just like, oh, we know. When I tell people I'm ADHD, they're like, oh, we know. I'm like, can people not have told me this 
prior yeah. three years ago. Like I could have really used this when I was growing up, but it's that it all comes back to representation. And I do think we're shifting. I do see the change in it, but I think there's a hell of a lot more to do. Yeah, and I think the reality is that there always will be. I mean, I I look back at some of the kind of big TV shows and films um, mm. kind of growing up. So Little Britain is oh. is one that always springs to mind. Um, now you've got lots of, of reasons why that is just a hideous TV show. Yep. <laughs> um, but actually at the time, I was probably laughing at it. Oh yeah, like I love Little Britain, so I did at the time. Like I can remember loving it. It's the same as Friends. It's the same as CTV yeah. shows from back then. They're so riddled in ableism and sexism and just every kind of form of ism. But at that time, it was culturally acceptable to speak that way. Like even even the word, like if we look at the word handicapped, you know, people used to use that word so freely. Some people use it. I hate that word with yeah, passion. Like even saying it there, like I'm pretty sure, like you're well, no one's gonna see me in camera, but my eyes nearly pop when I say it. But when I when we look across the world, even regionally, that language is still used in certain parts. Like if you look at Germany, France, they still use that as a way to identify. It, and it's, it's, it's baffling to me, and again, it shows the complete disjointedness across the, the world with disability and ableism is so rooted in our society that it has its own variations when it comes to different parts of the world. But when you look at 10 years ago, 20 years ago, what was acceptable ableism on TV now would be absolutely ripped apart. If somebody came on TV now on UK and said the word handicap, they would be absolutely ripped apart. There would be complaints to Ofcom. But years ago, it was completely acceptable to sit and mock disabled people like that. Well, I think the, the other thing that's always frustrated me is and I, I, it actually took somebody, I can't remember who it was now, but somebody talking about it, and it was it's Professor Z- uh, Xavier on... Um, X-Men. X-Men. So, love X-Men. And I, yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, and actually love the character in many, many ways. But if you look at particularly the newer films, mm. well, basically what they do is that they tell a story that life was better when he wasn't disabled. Yeah. They do it in movies this, this, this is a man that can yeah. control other people's minds. <laughs> yeah. And he's worried about being disabled. Piss off, is he? It's 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 just it's the way I really portrays like, even disability historically in the past, like it's always been portrayed as like a novelty or horror or like if you even go back further like if you look at america american history years ago like they used to have circuses where they brought red people with disabilities and called them freaks like it's history like history is history is a dark dark thing for humanity like i always say the day that we're billions of years in the future we've met other life forms are going to be like oh my god you have had the worst journey of anybody like we're going to teach you how you should have done it like because it's scary to think where we've where we've caught being it's great to see where we're going, but I think that, that you always have to take time to reflect because we've been through it. We've lived that experience, and I think now sometimes, like even when I compare it to my sexuality, people now use the word queer. That word was used so much as an insult, insult to yeah. me as a young person that I used to feel sick when people said it. If somebody even said the word gay around me, I would feel the whole room would spin, and I'd be like, oh, my God, they know I'm gay. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? Like I, I get caught names walking down the street in Belfast even to this day and age. Like I don't walk around with a sign saying I'm gay. Like I pretty much walk and try and not to get like squinting in the sun. But yeah. it's very much like people just shout that or they'll shout great gay boy queer, but I hated that word for years. Whereas now 
I'm actually finding this empowerment with it. I was at a gay pride, well, not a gay pride, a march equality march a few years ago because Northern Ireland didn't have march equality um, for LGBTQ+, which was absolutely symbolic, even though the UK and Ireland had it. Um, so we were lost to the party. Sorry, I can tell I don't like my government. Um, but with regards to it, like we were going past a bakery who had been discriminated against this couple. They wouldn't make them a cake because they were gay, essentially. Ash's yeah. bakery. Oh my God, it's a scandal. Um, so we were walking past and the drag queens and kings we were with started chanting up the queers. And I completely, I felt empowered. I could think the hairs on my arms stood. I was so empowered to hear, oh my God, this word that was used against me as a weapon. We're actually using this now to kind of chant and proclaim. Like, will I still tell people I'm queer? Oh my God, no, I will not, because I still keep saying that now. I'm like, oh, sorry, you can't say that word. Yeah. And it's because of that hurt. It's the same with words like the word spaz. People just call me spaz because I was blind. Now, that was just because I was disabled. And it was like any horrible word. I got called handicapped as well. I got called special. I got called blind little boy. Like, you name it, okay? Blind boy was another one. I got called so many little names when I was younger that. I struggled and even to say I struggle with it. But when I look back now, I'm like, it's important that we remember those lessons and that we do educate others on it and the reason where we why we do what we do. Because if things hadn't happened to us, if things were the way in the past, we wouldn't be here have to talk about this today. We wouldn't be doing the jobs we do. We wouldn't have to advocate so much for accessibility and inclusion. Yeah. It's, we need to remember the past because this kind of fuels the future for us, I think, and it helps us identify the lessons, the many wrong lessons. Indeed, indeed. That was very profound. <laughs> it was. And, and uh, I mean, I think that's what I've always um, enjoyed, kind of listening to the different bits that you do. And, and obviously we're on the on a bursary of schemes together, so we, we get the joys of each other every uh, every so often anyway. Um, but this has been a, a really wonderful conversation, as I kind of knew it would be. Um and I suspect I will be getting you back on, but I know you've got other commitments to to get to uh, shortly. So um, what I'll do is just wrap it up with uh, a couple of questions that I ask um, all of my guests. So the first one being, um, what advice would you give to your five-year-old self? Um, and a little bit about why. Um, do you know when um, you told me about this moment, um, when we were corresponding, you told me about this question was coming, and it reminded me of RuPaul. So there's a moment in RuPaul where he shows the drag queens, the finalist drag queens, a photo of themselves, and they're like, usually a child, it's like, what advice would you give to five-year-old Jamie or whoever the name is? And like, it made me think of that, but like, my advice to myself would probably be, it gets better, because like, I went through a pretty dark time after I left education, even going through education, like it was a pretty dark time. Yeah. I think my parents they probably struggled everyone around me struggled that was because if i was struggling so for me i would say it gets better because there'll be dark days there'll be days that you don't want to get in bed there'll be days that you'll feel sick i remember sitting drinking salt water to try to make myself sick not to go to school and i get proper makes you dry heave so if anyone's listening you ever want to know how to get sick drink salt water warm salt water make you book um but you know i think that you have to tell yourself it gets better and it's okay to not be okay because that's stuff that you don't learn as a man, particularly, that it's okay to cry, it's okay to show your emotions, it's okay to say, I need help. We, we don't get taught that. Yeah, I think that that it's interesting, that that kind of phrasing, it's okay to be okay, uh, to, to not be okay. For me, that's like, um, you kind of, your, your, um, your word queer, um, I, I find it really irritating, that word, because actually it's, it's, it's not okay to be not okay. It's uh, what I call it. It's, you, um, you need to get help. You need to yeah. speak to people. You need to have that ability to talk. 
And do you know, do you know what word okay as well? Do you know when somebody tells me, I say, how are you? And they go, okay. I'm like, okay, it's not really a feeling. But yet, when I talk to myself in my past, I'm like, I, I, it's one of those words that I think that if somebody would at that point to say to me, Jimmy, you, it's okay that you're crying. It's okay to be upset. I think that would have made a difference to me because I think when you bottle it in, you bottle that in, it unleashes. It unleashed in my 20s. I bench drink. I partied way too hard. I self-harmed. I was just an absolute train wreck. It was a roller coaster. Like, if I ever look back at my life, honestly, if I could watch a video of it, I would probably skip that part because I just needed somebody there without representation. And despite having the uncles with a lot of experience, they struggled to see it because they didn't have representation. They didn't know how to pay it. They didn't know what to do. So it gets better. It definitely, definitely does get better. Good. And the other one is, so just for a moment, imagine I am the world's best chef. And, you know, obviously I'm not far from that anyway. <laughs> um, but what, what, what dinner party meal would you have? And um, at the table, there's four empty seats. Who are you going to have there? So for dinner, we're having roast beef, but it needs to be slow cooked because I don't like roast beef unless it's slow cooked. So it falls apart. Um, it needs to have mash. You need to have your roasties. Not like a proper Sunday dinner, really. Yeah. Or if that fails, an Irish fry without the black pudding and white pudding because I can't do them. And you need to have Irish bread, it's like wheat and bread. Um, but my guess would be Maya Angelou would be one because I every ERG meeting I have my members, I start off with a quote. And they're usually always typically Maya Angelou quotes. And I just find... I just find it so fascinating the that do you know when you think about people being authentic and having the courage to really speak out about themselves, especially the time that she lived, it's just incre- incredible. Yeah. Um another guest would be Jane Hatton. And I, I love Jane Hatton, so I do from Even Break. Um she's done a podcast with me in the past. I just think that the social enterprise that Even Break has created is just it's honestly incredible, so it is like yeah. it's incredible. Um another one would be Oh my goodness, who else is going to my dinner party? Oh my goodness, I had time to prepare this and I have people in my head and I'm like, I don't even know. Actually, do you know who I'd bring? Lizzo. Lizzo. Because Lizzo, a few months ago, had an ableist slur in one of her songs. And rather than kind of just brush it off, change the lyric and say nothing, she used that platform to talk about how she apologised, but also how she should have really listened to those people. And, you know, as a bigger woman, she understands that kind of scrutiny and that kind of controversy and being put down by people. And she really owned her mistake. Whereas when a few months later, Beyonce did it, she changed the lyric and didn't say nothing about it. No apology. Yeah. Didn't show empathy. And also Liz is a great musician. So like you've got to have a great dinner party with her playing her. Isn't it a flute she plays? I think she plays flute, clarinet, anything. Um, and then the last one there, do you know, I, I know it's going to sound really silly, but I'm frank. Um, okay. I read, yeah, I know it sounds really silly because I, I don't think she's much to do with disability, the disability space, but I remember when we went to school, we were learning about Nazi Germany and her story, like to say, like when I think about it, it breaks my heart, it makes me sad. And I just, for, I think for me, I would just love to ha- sit down and have a conversation with her and just hear about what that was, not, not that it was like, because you can read her diary, but I don't know, just, do you know what I mean? You just want to, I just have so many questions. The untold side of it. Yeah, because it's, you know, we write things in diaries, we write things down, and I'm pretty sure she didn't mean for her diary to find that, because I'm pretty sure any young girl that age, or any young boy who writes a diary that age, they don't want anyone else to read that. The yeah. fact that this book has inspired so many, it has moved so many, you know, there was a movie, I can't even remember what you call it, that it was about, a, it was based on a true story, the school in the US, um, the teacher, uh, I can't, Jennifer Garner plays, which is a teacher, and she comes in and she kind of teaches this um, class about 
Nazi Germany and they read yeah. her book and they get somebody in. So I'll find out the name and send it after. But they, it was just like how conflict and that part, like history, those parts of history can really impact your modern day and how you see things. And when you take those lessons from history and how you look at that and implement that in real life or your present day life, it, there's lessons there. And I think for that reason, I just think that conversation with her, there'll be so much value in it. And I also just think that that it's just it would just be one of those people who I think anybody should really <laughs> would should speak to because it's 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 just insane that whole time period. Like I I don't know how to explain it. I'm, I'm going around in tangents here, but yeah, that would be her. Yeah, because I just since school I've been obsessed with that. Book. It would be an interesting bunch, that's for sure. It would be. We'd have loads of player music. We would have. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine? Maybe not. Yeah, maybe Can you imagine not, Anne not. Frank's responses to like yeah. the world and stuff like that. Like. <laughs> More to the thing, imagine a response to me walking around calling myself a registered blind rhino. She'd be like, what is going on here? <laughs> and then uh, Jane Hatton, I know Jane Hatton would me would be in the corner having giggles. Like Jane is, she's just inspiring. Like she's one of my, I, I would call her one of my icons. Actually, Kate Nash maybe. We'll bring Kate Nash too if this is for seat. Go on then. I'll chuck one in. Come on over, Kate. <laughs> Why not? But Jamie, that, 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 that was, that's been amazing. Thank you very much um, for coming on. Um, do you want to give a quick shout to where people can find you if they want to find your your stuff? Yeah, so on LinkedIn, it's, it's just my name, Jamie Shields, or I think the actual link is Shields Jamie. Um, I have another podcast, well, my own podcast, that's going to be launching soon, which I actually need to sort out getting your guest on, Gavin, which is The Inclusivity. Now, it's a podcast about spilling the tea on inclusivity, specifically disability, but it is also going to be a kind of website with part of a business running through it where we'll do some document remedies for accessibility, website checks for accessibility, selling some graphics, things like that, basically trying to help put as much knowledge out there about accessibility, not just in documents, but in social media. Um, so watch the space. There's a lot happening there. But if you ever want, just message me on LinkedIn day and night. I have constantly countless messages on there, and Galvin will tell you I'm terrible at plan, <laughs> but I will aim to try. <laughs> Yeah, just just give them a few days and it'll be fine. Yeah, or just gentle nudge. Gentle nudge is going to be soft and work. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. I always finish up just just wishing you love, uh, compassion, and kindness, and uh, sending those vibes your way. Thank you so much for coming on, Jamie. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. And apology, listeners, for the ta- rabbit tangent holes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we like. <laughs> Well, thank you, friends. That's all we've got time for today. I'm sure you have enjoyed uh, today's episode. And if you did, please make sure you rate uh, the episode and the show's five stars on whatever platform you might be listening on. And of course, please share your own stories and your own um, thoughts and feelings of the episodes in the reviews. You can also find me on I am Gavin Clark and that's Clark with an E over on Instagram and you can search for the safe place uh, on there too it's a safe place podcast but for now I'll send you away with love kindness and compassion speak soon <laughs>